0: good morning. I'm delighted to be back with you. It's always a pleasure to be at Providence Reformed Church and to have the privilege of opening God's Word to you. I'd like to direct your attention this morning to the Old Testament, a narrative passage in a great historical book, First Kings. We're going to consider the first 16 verses of chapter 17. And we come to a time roughly around the end of the 10th century B.C., beginning of the 9th century B.C., and we find the emergence of one with whom we're quite familiar, a great prophet of the Lord, Elijah. Not only is he a prophet of the Lord, he is a patriot of Israel. He loves his God, he loves his nation and his people. And therefore, he is profoundly disturbed at the turn they have taken and all of the idol worship that is so prevalent at this time in their history. And what we have here in synopsis before us in these 16 verses that I'm about to read is God using his prophet to show that he alone is the true and living God above all others. And he brings his spokesman, his man, his prophet, his representative to safety, provides for him there, and in so doing, blesses one whom you wouldn't expect God to bless, if you were a typical Israelite in that day, and thereby he shows, indeed, that there is no other God than he, that he alone is able to establish sinners before himself, and to sustain them. He alone can deliver from death, and keep. So that's where we're going. Let's hear now God's holy and inerrant word, First Kings 17, verses 1 through 16. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here, and turn eastward, and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the raven to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said as the Lord your God lives I do not have bread only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar and see I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die and Elijah said to her do not fear go and do as you have said but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterwards Make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to the preaching of it. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful and humbled when we think about this passage that we have read and how they are your inspired words, and they are as normative for us today as they were when they were first written. We ask that you would, by your Spirit, examine us, that you would test us and know our hearts, that you would convict and you would comfort, that you would break down and build up, that you would establish us again before yourself as your people, as you open our eyes to the truth, as it is in Christ Jesus, in whose name we do ask all of these things. Amen. Joe Torrey played baseball for many years, and then he managed a total of five teams, and he now is assisting the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, as the number two man in baseball operations. He's had quite a career in the sport. What a lot of people don't know about Mr. Torrey is that he and his wife had a child a little over 20 years ago when he was in his mid-50s. Now, this seems to be something that's happening more and more. Men are becoming fathers beyond the average age in which most men do. I was thinking about him the other day as I was reading an article, and that particular fact that I was aware of just popped into my head, and I began to think about that. I thought that must have made for an interesting childhood for this daughter. I mean, you know how children are at a certain age when they're proud of their fathers, and they begin to uh, engage in sort of a battle of the dad's, Maybe it's on the playground. Well, my dad is stronger than your dad, or my dad is smarter than your dad. Think of what she could have contributed to such exchanges. Well, my dad won the National League MVP in 1971. The other children probably just sort of look at her. Uh, uh, my dad won a World Series when I was two years old, that type of thing. Uh, unique and really incomparable grist for the conflict mill, "...as you were engaging in Father Braggadocia." Now, there is a sense in which Israel is at that point in her history now. There is a great battle of the gods going on in which men are no doubt engaging in exchanges in which they want to contend for the god of their choice that suits them. Namely, at this time, Baal, a Canaanite storm god. And what we have here in this great God conflict, as I said a moment ago, is God preparing ultimately through the destruction of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, of which you read as you go a couple of chapters on, actually the next chapter in chapter 18, you see that he is going to ultimately, through a great force, show beyond all doubt that he alone is God and there is none other. And this is... A great privilege of Elijah to be used of God to the end of, as it were, causing in the providence of God, the real God to come forward. As the old to tell the truth game show line used to go, will the real God please stand up? We can apply that here. Now, it's interesting to note that Elijah's name means Yah is God, the first half of Jehovah's name, Yahweh, Yah is God. So the very name that this man bears as prophet means that his express purpose throughout his ministerial life, if you will, is to showcase Yahweh as the one whom alone is God. And as I said, Baal is a Canaanite storm god, So God in His providence, the real, the true, and the living God, is stopping rain in order that He might teach Ahab and Jezebel and all these all loving and false God-worshipping fools to see that He is God. He causes the rain. No Canaanite God. Now, lest our haughty hearts sit back and sort of ready for this and have an attitude of, you go, Elijah, get him. I suggest to you that this great God conflict is one that serves as an opportunity for us to examine our own hearts. That's why I'm calling it a diagnostic God conflict. (coughs) To search the heart. To see if, pray tell, there might be some idolatrous way in us that we might be seeking to credit others than the true and living God for all of the favor that we have in our lives. And so I want us to approach this today by asking four diagnostic questions that emerge as one unpacks this great historic passage. And the first of them would be this. Are we... And we can ask these questions both individually and corporately. Are we, am I, devoid of God's word? Am I devoid of God's word? What we have here, because of what we have just read, is the presence of the spokesperson of God somewhere other than with the people of God. He's taking him away for his own protection, and he's also causing spiritual benefit to accrue to another who is outside the covenant. Therefore, Israel is devoid of the Word of God. If you don't have the messenger, you don't have the message. And message and messenger are the same. If you don't have the prophet, you don't have the word. The missing prophet is the missing, thus saith the Lord. Notice how many times, eight in total, between verses 1 and 16, that we are told the word of the Lord. There's an inclusio in verses 1 and 17 The word of the Lord and the word of Elijah are tied together, thereby demonstrating to us that they are synonymous, that you have no presence of God without the messenger bringing the word of that God. And then six times in between, all throughout these things, you see the details of the account as it unfolds. Then the word of the Lord came. Then the Lord God of Israel said, and the like. So this is evidence that the Word of God is present with one other than the people of God. And we have to ask the question, why is that? Well, when you study uh, the Old Testament, you see very quickly that the absence of the messenger of God, and therefore the absence of the message of God, is judgment on some level. You remember in 1 Samuel 28, where Saul inquired of God at, Gilboa, the Philistines were closing in on Shunem, and because the request was made out of anxiety and not out of piety and trust, God was silent in dreams and did not speak through the prophets. Could it be then that Elijah's absence is part of Yahweh's judgment on Israel because of her idolatry? And I think undoubtedly it is so that there is no presence Of God because God's spokesman is there. That some are because of their sin devoid of the word of God. Uh, Some have never had that word to begin with. And I, I I think about this the pastoral dimensions of my heart, whatever of them are there. I think about people who think that they know the Lord, that they contain the Word of God. They have fellowship with that one who is the Word in the flesh. But they really don't. They have idols. They trust the sweetest frames other than the work of Jesus. They prop themselves up by other hopes that are false. But outwardly, they look fine. They seem to be okay. For example, they might be very pleased about Israel, the U.S. Embassy in Israel now being in Jerusalem instead of Tel Aviv. They might be captivated by all manner of eschatological nuances and into predicting the end of the world, but are they devoid of the Word? Do they have fellowship with the One who is the Word in the flesh? Do they really know Him savingly? Maybe they're not there yet. Maybe they are, and maybe it is that because of their sin, he has been displaced and is no longer nearby and has moved on to those whom He would be pleased to set His affections upon, who by His grace would gladly receive His Word of promise and believe it and trust it and obey it. And Do they need to have Him come back? Are we devoid of the One who is the Word? I love Isaiah 55, 11, where the Word says that his Word that goes forth from His mouth will not return void, but it will accomplish His purpose and it will succeed in the thing for which it was sent. Those who do not know the Word in the flesh, the One who has dwelt among men and now sits in heaven, those can come and know rather than being devoid, they can possess Him, the One who is never void, never empty, but comes full of grace and truth to assign to them precisely what they need, His righteousness and right standing before God. That's the dabar, the word of the Lord that comes through the mouth of the prophet. In the New Testament, it's the logos. That word that goes forth from the mouth of God is seen by men in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the connection that we see here. We have to ask, are we devoid of the Word? Do we need to come to Him by faith? Do we need to cause Him to return again? Because God will protect His glory. God will, for the honor of His name, remove that which is sacred and that which is blessed. If man insists upon sinning, and going another way, and loving another God, and harboring another idol in the heart. We see this when we study the seven churches in the book of Revelation. The church at Ephesus, if they did not repent, he tells us in Revelation 2.5, He'll come and He'll remove the lampstand from its place. You think of Laodicea, that lukewarm church. Talk about being devoid. Talk about displacement of the Word. Talk about the Word being locked out. Notice how that verse that is often misused, although well-intentioned, in evangelism, Revelation 3.20, Jesus standing at the door and knocking, he says right before that, be therefore zealous and repent. He wants them to do the works for which they originally were meant and that flowed from their love for him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. There is the word that has been voided in practice. He's there. Can you imagine that? And he didn't leave you. You have displaced Him in your sin and the chastening judgment of God is there. And how kind and how gracious that there is to have a call to zeal of repentance. And here is the Word in the flesh standing at the door, knocking, longing for His voice to be heard. And the door opened that there once again might be fellowship together as embodied in this most intimate of human endeavors and experiences the partaking of food together. Oh yes, God can take His Word away and the people of God as they sin can find His Christ who is that Word away. And I wonder then as we examine on our hearts, do we need to hear His voice this day as He knocks and open it unto Him again? Is the body of Christ, are indeed individuals devoid of the Word of God, full of grace and truth. But the second question I think we have to ask here, not only are we devoid of the Word of God, but are we amazed by God's ways? One of the reasons I love to study the Old Testament is that it is just so remarkably replete with things that delightfully surprise you and catch you off guard as you really dig into it. And our God has a way of breaking all conventions and doing things outside of the boxes to which we limit Him. This is the leader of Israel... And his God is caring for him, and we ought to be, as we say today, blown away by all of the details of this account. Now, the Word of the Lord comes to him, and he tells him to go to this brook, and he's going to be fed there, bread and meat, morning and evening, by a raven. By the way, uh, that flies radically in the face of being kosher. That's against dietary laws. If you go to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, can you imagine the kind of meat that a raven would have brought? But, but that's what he says, and so he does it. He's there for a while, and the raven keeps bringing the food, but the brook dries up, so we have to go to plan B. And the word of the Lord comes to him again. He arises and goes to Zarephath, of all places, where there's going to be a widow there. Now, widows in this day were on the bottom rung of society. Uh, they, for all intents and purposes, when their husbands died, saw their lives as pretty much over. Uh, they weren't working women. they weren't taking courses to learn skills at the local community college to reinvent their life. There weren't none of this. When, when your husband was gone and you were getting on in years, that to you seemed to be the end. So why would such a person then be tapped by God to sustain his profit? That's remarkable. That's an amazing thing. And then the oddity and even the wit that we find here from our narrator as these things are communicated to us. He comes in and he sees her at the city gate and has already been told by the Lord that in his providence it is his command that this widow will provide for him. And he does something that's not really out of the ordinary, it doesn't strike you as anything odd. Please bring me a little water in a cup. He says in verse 10, that I may drink. And then in verse 11, he says, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand, a little bit of water, and a bite of bread. That's not so odd. But what do you think she thought when this command of the Lord comes and then he requests that she make him a small cake from the flour and bring it to him first and afterwards? feed herself and her son. Doesn't that seem a bit forward? Wouldn't that even be taken sometimes as rude by some? There's all kinds of things here that take our expectations and just eliminate them and cause our God to emerge as the one who brings about his ways mysteriously and wondrously. Are we amazed by his ways? But Specifically beyond all of this, I think we need to see that ultimately, again, what he is doing by protecting his man is preserving his word. God, in providing for the protection of his word carrier, is revealing the immovability of his truth and causes us to see what is important, is that his people have his truth and have his word. That without it they will surely die. So as God preserves Elijah, the purpose of the perpetuity and protection of his word for proclamation is established undeniably. We may look at this, as many often have, and be sort of envious. Those from the name it, claim it crowd, they look at all of these things that are happening and that are off the beaten path in terms of our expectations, and we ask as we are wowed by this, why can't those things happen in our lives? Why can't the minutiae of our daily living entail such pleasant surprises like this? Well, for one reason, we're not talking about Joe Israel here. We're talking, again, about the prophet of Yahweh. This is not just a fellow disciple of Jehovah, but this is, at this time in Israel's history, this is the redemptive figure. So, we oughtn't pine about how our lives are not as exciting with such details. We need to look at those and see beyond that God's great desire to preserve His Word, because the greatest gift you and I have is the Word of God. It is Jesus and all of the eternal expressions of the Godhead that we have in Scripture. Think about that, how God has preserved His Word for us. We lack nothing. We open it daily. We find ourselves in possession of those things that not only save us, but that stir our hearts and fortify our souls in ways that we would have never imagined. We see there here that there is sort of a macro level, if you will, on which God is preserving the Word, and a micro level By macro, we simply mean this, the big picture. There is God working. Here is God working as He continues to and save and preserve and set forth His Word by virtue of the safety He grants to His Word-bearer. And He assigns to us the greatest blessing that we could ever have. Thus saith the Lord, to feed upon His Word by faith and to trust in Him, to know that He is setting forth, and by the Word and by the power of His Spirit, making known the will of His for man's salvation. And when you consider the greater Elijah, and how it is that Jesus is the Word in the flesh, the very embodiment of all whom God is, The only thing greater than preservation from death would be the allowance to go under the power of death and then to deliver from that. You see, the safety that God gives Elijah and that Elijah enjoys, one day the greater Elijah will not. But he will come through death and he will rise again and he will be victorious over it. And it is precisely because of that that it is possible for us to do what the woman here is called to do. See the command of God, believe the Word of God, and act in obedience. Even as in that day they wondered, well, will we survive? Those who loved the Lord Jesus, as we all know from studying the accounts in the New Testament we know that they had their doubts about whether Jesus would be victorious over death. Would He rise again? You think of the women standing guard or sitting rather by the tomb. You think of the apostles and their doubts in Jesus, the risen Lord after His resurrection and coming forward, asking them why they doubted and all of these kinds of things. It shows you the struggle of man. That hasn't changed. We see how it is that God ultimately brings the greatest of preserving victories in raising his son from the dead. I had a story recently of a woman named Blanche Gwynne of Elizabethtown, Tennessee, who almost 50 years ago, after burying what she thought was the body of her son, Private First Class John W. Gwynne, Was notified that there had been a switch and the buried body was actually that of Private First Class Quinn Tickner. A check of fingerprints by the FBI provided the proper identity, and thereupon the U.S. Army arranged an immediate home leave for her son serving in Vietnam. Imagine the the, the joy of the one that you, you think is dead is alive again, and it is by his living that all who would trust and believe and all who would follow get a leave from His judgment and are freed to come home. You and I enjoy that. Why? Precisely because another is identified in death. And not only so, but comes under its sway and in the span of three days throws that sway off entirely are we amazed by all of that to which this historic account points but i think it's within our liberty also even if we haven't experienced such cool things in our own lives in terms of the particulars right to appreciate those who have don't you find that as the years wear on you don't envy people so much as you marvel at god's work and what he's given them And when your spectacles, the ones you have on, you know, the lens through which you're looking, has its purpose in seeing God's sustenance of His man in order to preserve His Word. And in our context, to see how it is that Jesus reigns and how He is with us, never leaving us nor forsaking us, you can come to appreciate anything that God would do for anyone to that end. Maybe it's strange, but I enjoy investigating the particularities of God's providence because I know that is the precise purpose, that He's doing it for ultimately His people having His Word, His hope set before them. Whether it's small things... Or big things. But here we have the small things, the mundane things of life. We have this widow from afar off who's some 80 miles from Samaria. This one is the last person in the world that you would think would be the provider for God's man as God unleashes his purposes in his life. We ought to, to take great pleasure in that. Just let that simmer. Let it sink in. Feel the pleasure of that. Look at the particular ways in which God works and delight in it. The last one you would expect God causing to help this man. I think it's one of the reasons I enjoy studying presidential history and reading biographies because there's so much that people don't know that went on in the lives of the 44 men who have now been the leaders of the free world by holding that office, whether it's a Harry Truman who on an afternoon in 1954, about a year after leaving office, is stuck in traffic on a highway. Mind you, this is before Secret Service was assigned to former presidents. And there's a woman up ahead who has a trailer with some animals in it, and suddenly that door comes open and hogs. Are going all over the place. And the 33rd President of the United States says to his driver, We've got to help that woman get her hogs in. And there's Harry Truman rounding up hogs. (laughs) Or Calvin Coolidge getting word early in the morning of August 2nd, 1923, that President Harding is dead, supposedly of food poisoning in San Francisco. He's at home in Vermont visiting his father. And by the light of a lantern, he has administered the oath of office. And he becomes the 30th President of the United States as his father swears him in. Can you imagine what his father was thinking at that moment? Come in here, son. I've got to administer the oath of office to you. How wondrous, how how delightful, how tickling to the inner recesses of the soul are God's providential ways, and how much more so for His people. Isn't it amazing that He works this way? Are you amazed by the ways of Yahweh? But thirdly, then we have to ask the question, are we tuned to the Lord's want's? Are we tuned to the Lord's wants? We've talked about this being a widow. She is far away. I've said that, but we need to camp out on the fact uh, that she's farther away even than we realize. Uh, She is uh, in Zarephath, which is uh, near Sidon. It's about 13 miles north of Tyre, and as I said a moment ago, some 80 miles from Samaria. I mean, this is way off into Baal land. Uh, This is not just on the outskirts. So we see God's pleasure in providing for His prophet through a widow, but it would have been somewhat understandable had this been an Israelite widow. But no, He's going deep into Gentile territory, as it were. I mean, this is in the area where Ethbaal, Jezebel's father, had ruled. The Sidonians, he was their king. And, and you would think this is the last place that God would go into to somehow operate mercifully. But he does it, and he thereby shows that his want, his desire is in, to enfold from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. Those who do not deserve his favor, but nevertheless to whom he is pleased to give it. Now, we need to emphasize that this ought to cause us to be more in tune with the nuances of cultures today and to seek to have the church militant look more like what we know the church triumphant will. But I would go even farther than that. I would say that there is hope given this account for the favor of God being extended to anyone about whom you are concerned. And not only those outside of the church... But think about our covenant children who have wandered off. Think about those who have been in the church virtually every year of their life. And yet, as I said before, they have not turned the corner. They have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We need to be expectant of God saving those afar off. But we also need to be expectant of Him saving those right in our own backyard whom we see as being just as far beyond the pale sometimes of redemption as those who are in faraway places. I remember Dr. Mike Ross, who many years pastored the Trinity Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, and there was a man who had sat in the same pew for years in the same spot. And after Dr. Ross had been pastoring that church for many years, the man came to him one day after having heard a sermon and said that he had trusted Christ for the first time. This is what our God is doing. He's reaching into the Zarephaths, but also right into our pews, and astonishing us by doing what we didn't really believe He would do, but has proven time and time again through the years that He is pleased to do. His want, His desire is to bring in many from all over, from out of every circumstance. Stephen Charnock, the great 17th century Puritan who pastored at Crosby Hall Bishopsgate for five years in the 1670s alongside Thomas Watson, once said this, "'Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. God has stores of mercy lying by him, His exchequer is never empty. He keeps mercy for thousands and in a readiness to deal it upon millions of sins as well as millions of persons. I don't know about you, but I often forget about that. I'm mired down in whatever's besetting me or keeping me busy, and I fail to just look up and take account of what God is doing that often in my low expectations will shock me. And this is the kind of text that will call you to ready yourself and to be expectant of his amazing ways to work his ultimate redemptive wants. But then finally, I would ask us in the face of this account, are we moved by the Lord's will Are we moved by the Lord's will? Specifically, I'm thinking about that which I mentioned a moment ago as question 24 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that Christ executes the office of a prophet in making known to us by His Word and Spirit the will of God for our salvation. What we have here, particularly as you look at the final four verses, we have the the inductive flow, again, of God's command of God's promise and of the call to believe. It is per the word of the Lord that this woman is going to receive what she receives. In fact, in verse 12 there at the beginning, you see she even uses the language that Elijah has used when speaking to Ahab in verse 1. She says, as the Lord your God lives, she takes the same oath that this prophet has. So we're seeing through that that she's beginning to to come Yahweh's way. And then there's this great, what seems at first like a crazy idea, but the reality that she experiences that she, if she will take from first the flour and make a small cake and bring it to Elijah, she will afterward have for herself and for her son, because this is per the Word of the Lord. That the flour will never be used up <clears throat> nor the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. We need to see too, that this miracle is one of, <clears throat> excuse me, daily consistency. It's not an overflowing. It's not as though that she has so much flour, she can't contain it all, and she has to stack some of it in bags out back. But just what is needed comes daily in terms of the oil and in terms of the flour. And it continues. For many days. The promise is that the flour will not be used up. And the jar of the oil will never run dry. Literally in the Hebrew, we could most accurately translate this, will never end. That is, it keeps going until the word of the Lord says otherwise, which in this case would be the sending of rain, which comes Later, Jesus in Luke chapter 4 actually tells us three years and six months in Luke 4.25. What we have to see with all of this is verse 15. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. She obeyed. She heard the command of God. Heard the command of God. Believed the word of God and experience the fulfillment of that word through obedience. Not because of it, but through it. And so there's a couple of things we have to ask ourselves. Do we appreciate the fact that God is so faithful, this one who requires of us faith, ultimately in the greater Elijah, the Lord Jesus Christ, Do we see, again, are we encouraged how this account points us to the glorious reality that whosoever would come, whomever would believe, may. That heaven's door is open wide to any and all who would simply hear the command of God, believe the promise of God, and obey the Word of God to not be afar off from obedience, but be in it, so that you are never devoid of the Word, so that you are never mundane in the face or blaséed by His ways, or you are never out of accord with His wants, but because you are moved by His will, and that is that all men everywhere believe, then you can develop a greater sense of conviction about how it is that all people everywhere need to hear need to be expressly told about the commands of god and the promises of god and called to believe i was so convicted a couple months ago i had lunch with my colleague bob bierkes who as you know last year had major surgery on his brain he's doing much better now though still trying to recover his voice and he said he'd been emphasizing personal evangelism to his congregation And he'd been getting some pushback on that, and people would say things like, well, I evangelize with my lifestyle, which is a very popular out in this day and age in which we're increasingly daunted by everything that's happening round about us, and we just so often don't want to go there because of new atheism or what have you. But Pastor Vierkes' response to such statements is this, I would hate to stand on Judgment Day And it become clear to my unbelieving neighbor why I lived the way I lived, but I never told him. And to have him turn to me and say, with it too late, so that's why you lived the way you lived. You know, this calls us, I think, to have a, a great burden for those far and wide to know the wisdom of God, to have a knowledge of Him. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, in his instruction to his son, My son, if you receive my words, and if you treasure my commands, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then will you understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. See, the fear of the Lord. That's what Israel, that's what these Baal worshippers under Ahab and Jezebel's leadership didn't have. They didn't fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord see Him as the only true God. And they find the knowledge of God. The diah Not merely basic wisdom, but a knowledge of the will of God unto new obedience. That's what we have here. God's favor to one afar off, and we never would have expected to believe and to obey and to experience His blessing. But she does, and thereby proves that it is for whosoever. Richard Baxter, another great 17th-century nonconformist, said, "I conceive that there could be no stronger word as whosoever in the gospel offer." If God had put my own name in His work and made it an express revelation that Richard Baxter might be saved, it would not have been half so strong because there might have been many Richard Baxters and He has said, whosoever will. How then could I be certified knowing that it was especially for me the Word was meant? But because He has said, whosoever will, then I can have no doubt the Word is so inclusive that none need fear exclusion, so gracious that none need apprehend rejection. This is why the greater Elijah, when he was in the flesh, said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever believeth in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whomever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks, do you believe this to Martha? That is the ultimate question. And dear friends, these questions that we ask today, diagnostically out of 1 Kings 17, are merely the trailer and the preview for that ultimate question. May we tuck them away in our hearts and consider them. And may we be able to see Yahweh's commands his promises, the surety of them, and step out in full obedience. Not turning to the left or the right or this foolishness or that foolishness, but having the scale, spell of eternity cast upon us so that we never again cause our feet to move to any idol. But we say with our words and with our lives, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank You for the way in which You are faithful to us, though we are faithless. We're grateful how You, even when we in our sin push You away and exclude You, come back. You seek us. We ask that You would move in our hearts, that we would be zealous for repentance. Repentance. And that we again would own the work of Christ for ourselves. That we would humbly serve Him and Him alone. That we would put down all things that distract us, that steal our affections. And our heart and soul and mind and strength may be yours. For you are our God. We are in no conflict. For we serve you and you alone. May it be said of us this day, for Jesus' sake, who is the Word eternal, who lives and reigns and graciously governs and sets us right with You. Amen.